Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. So if you're able to change a number on a spreadsheet one time and you don't see a negative fallout in your life, and in fact, mm-hmm. you're rewarded for it, you'll change more numbers on spreadsheets over time, even though that's technically cheating, and still feel mm-hmm. like you're a good person because you give to charity and you take your kids to private school and all these kinds of things that make you feel like you're a good person. That's what's happening writ large. Like We have to look at the incentive structures we're building in society because those produce the behavior by what are effectively primates. <laughs> Human society is just a massive study of primatology. And we do the exactly what you would expect chimpanzees or apes to do, given the same set of incentives. Hey, everybody. Today we are joined by Mike McCarg, a.k.a. Science Mike. Mike is an author, speaker, podcaster, and public educator who uses empathy and deep scientific insights to navigate the most difficult parts of the human experience. He worked for years as a founding member of The Liturgist and continues to host his own podcast called Ask Science Mike. His second book, You Are a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, will be released April 28th. Among other things, in our conversation today, we discuss the way that truth, goodness, and beauty intersect with the way our brains have developed for survival, and Mike shares a bit about how he avoids getting overwhelmed by feeling responsible for the world but also how he takes the steps that he can to help. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, yeah, it's really fun to meet you. I have that weird thing where I've heard you talk a lot. <laughs> so I feel like I know you, even though I haven't talked to you. But um, I feel like that's a weird thing when the other person has never talked to you. I feel uh, really familiar with you, so I have a similar feeling. I kind of jumped in and just started talking like we were <laughs> not just meeting. Um, That's good. I had, the, I had the same feeling. How are you doing in in this time of weirdness? Oh my gosh, it's a too big a question. Not at all. Um, I do have to think for a second. I mean, it depends on the day, right? Um, yeah. I feel such a clear sense of purpose right now to apply my skills at uh, science education Mm -hmm. and emotional education and combine those in a way that benefits public and mental health. So I get out of bed like knowing what I'm going to do every day right now, which is nice. I am also terrified uh, like everyone else. I don't know who I know that will I won't know anymore. Mm-hmm. six months from now because they're going to die my income is just all gone that income's just not a thing if you're uh in the events business it's yeah. just it's just gone all of a sudden all of it so um i'm like leaning into an eviction moratorium in los angeles to make sure i'm not homeless i mean it's it's a weird time yeah. I'm making more media than I've ever made. I'm trying to be um, proactive. Like I was literally, before we hopped on this call, building out um, ticketing for the tour stops I'm doing. I'm doing a virtual in-home tour. 
just to try to give people something to look forward to and some way to be together in local communities. But how's uh, that? How's hard. that look? The the local in home tour. What is that? What's that? Involved? Well, when I realized like there's no such thing as failing an online event. You, I mean, you you've you've toured. You get it. Like if you don't sell enough tickets in a room, mm-hmm. somebody's taking a bath on that event and someone's taking a yeah. hit on that event, and it affects your ability to keep doing it. So you're always like carefully doing this calculus of like, and by the way, nobody knows if a show is going to sell or not ever. Uh, you can always be wrong, but you do your best to try to pick more shows that'll make money than not. And if you're doing it online, there's no venue fee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I realized like, why not just expand my tour to literally as much time as I have on the calendar, but still go city by city so that when people... Um, the way I structure an event is it's built on dialogue and questions, question and response. Mm-hmm. So I wanted people when they saw each other in the event to still see people who they could conceivably see face to face once all of this is over. Yeah. And so that's why I'm doing it city by city is to keep the number of people per event smaller instead of just doing one mega online event that mm-hmm. frankly is boring because there's not an opportunity to get everybody on camera who'd like to be. Uh, and number two, to keep it local. That's super cool. Who knows if it'll work? <laughs> but that was the I idea. Feel, well, I feel like I feel like if you had talked about it a couple years ago, people would be like, eh. and I think now, like the reality is, everyone's like, oh yeah, that would be great. Like any any time that we can feel like we're together, and uh, I think it's great. The That's response awesome. yesterday to the social media posts about it were far more enthusiastic and the response had been to the actual tour announcement right before COVID was a thing. Mm. So it does seem like there's been some shift where people are like, wait, something other than Netflix? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Last night I, I uh, got on Instagram Live and played a game of Quiplash with whoever wanted to show up. Oh, and dude, that's, it was, we just started playing that game. It's isn't so it great? fun. It's, it's great so with strangers fun. too. Yeah? Wait, so you, just, you can just throw it online i, I just done that yet. pointed my camera oh, yeah, at you just my put screen your... and was like everybody go to jackbox tv and use this code and we just played a 40 person game of quiplash everyone can't play though right you just you can vote if your audience yeah you got there was okay. like but i don't that know gives you points though. seven yeah. or nine people who played and then another 20 people in the audience and that's fun it was fun all right i need to do that i think i'm going to set up a twitch server just to host quiplash games <laughs> that'd be awesome i mean what are we gonna like we're all stuck at home uh, yeah and like i'm lucky enough i'm home and i have a family right like i'm i've mm-hmm. got my wife and i've got my children i have people that i can physically be around safely but there's so many people who are just home home and it's just yeah. them and it's going to be that way for weeks maybe months and We've got to figure out ways of being together, even when we can't be together. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of games, I see uh, some D&D stuff back on oh, the, yeah. the shelf there. Uh, I just started running a campaign for uh, my three girls and my brother. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing at all, but it's it's super fun. It's very complicated, though. Like getting getting started at least. Well, so. especially if you're the if you're the dungeon master. 
yeah just starting there's it, a lot of complexity it's it's it can be easier i started as a player and mm-hmm. played for a while and then became a dungeon master and that can help i played like twice because <laughs> i don't know anyone who plays really well we played on tour once and then i did a little bit of numenera with a with a couple people mm-hmm. but i i didn't dig the i don't know i didn't dig the world as much i wanted to do do this but um are you playing right now with anyone on like online i host a game for um my wife and my kids okay and then i'm part of a game that i really haven't seen the equivalent of anywhere else um it's hosted by a bunch of people who were listeners of the liturgist pod, or are listeners of the liturgist podcast and uh we have a game with like six dungeon masters and i don't know 35 or 40 active players and then a couple of hundred observers <laughs> wait how do you have that many people um we host it online and people can kind of go and sign up and um, but how do you how do you actually play with 35 people playing we we will you'll well it's very complicated <laughs> you do sessions so people sign up for sessions and then that's just like five or seven people who do a session um and then there's okay. a, a real-time kind of text role play happening on discord that everyone okay. can participate in whenever they want you just show up in like character as and if start you're talking. in the pub or something that's right well in this in our game it's more in the pub there's like multiple cities and multiple pubs and that's crazy. It's pretty wild. <laughs> cool. It's the because um, it's so, it's very cool. It is also like at first when people sign up, they're like, I don't understand. Like even if you play D and D, it's a lot. And if you never played D and D, you're just like, uh. So I had to start basically every Saturday and every Sunday. I host what's called a session zero to train new people. Uh, to be like, here's how this game works, and it's it's gone pretty well. Occasionally, people are like, oh my god, Science Mike is hosting my session zero. Um. But they get over that pretty fast when they get overwhelmed with how complicated the world is. That's crazy. Uh, so anyone can sign up for it? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's cool. All right. Open sign-ups. Maybe I will. Um, all right. So you just wrote your second book. Mm-hmm. It is called You Are a Miracle, parentheses, and a pain in the ass, right? That's the one. That? All right. What is going on with this book why this book when did you know you had to write this book twice first i knew i had to write the book because i was the co-founder and co-host of a really successful podcast and i woke up every morning and i did work that i found deeply meaningful and that i thought was making Mm -hmm. the world a better place i still believe that it was and i had faced a lot of pain and trauma and things in my past and gotten into a place where I felt healthy. I had um, I'd lost like 100 pounds, um, run a marathon, and I realized like I did it. I grew and I changed mm-hmm. and I didn't just survive. I thrived. I should tell other people how to be as happy and successful as I am. Mm-hmm. And that's really like the book I started writing. And then I realized I wasn't all put together. (laughs) I started gaining weight again. I started having panic attacks. Uh, The panic attacks I was having and some other mental health challenges led me to several diagnoses. I learned that I have autism spectrum disorder. 
I learned that I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as CPTSD. Uh, my daughter uh, was diagnosed with anorexia. I had a cardiac event that put me in the hospital, paying for mental health treatments for me, for my daughter, and then hospital treatments for myself. Wiped out our life savings. We got on the edge of bankruptcy, a place that, frankly, we have lived ever since. And I realized how quickly you can think you have everything together and realize everyone is powerless in the face of life. doesn't mm-hmm. matter what stage you think you're in. And uh, around that time, my computer crashed and I lost the entire manuscript no. that I was working on. And I was up against the deadline. And so I sat down and I rewrote the book from memory. But now there was a little frame shift. I could no longer write a book about how to be successful like me. I had to write Mm -hmm. a book about learning to love yourself in the midst of difficulty and pain and suffering and failure. And that became the book that you have now. I think I wrote it in nine days. Wow. That's super interesting. So all your research was done and kind of integrated and then you had a chance to kind of go back and reframe how to put it all together yeah i'm so glad my computer crashed it the book was an encyclopedia before that i was citing as i went along and i had so many references it was like a book that basically was like footnotes mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like every third word yeah. had a number on it mm-hmm. um and it it it, it it all needed to happen. I'm, I, I have to go through a research phase. God knows I was well-researched for this book, but then I figured out what like really mattered and what really had to make the cut when uh, I'm sitting at my computer for eight or 12 hours a day crying, yeah. writing this book. And honestly, I'll, I love the book. I really love it. Uh, I was okay with my first book. But I think this is like a great book. I think it's really helpful. I think it comes from the right place that a book should come from, which is a place of sincere curiosity and co-learning. Mm-hmm. I think books yeah. are books where a writer, no matter how eloquently or persuasively lectures the reader, is already a doomed enterprise. And uh, this is a book that's like, here's some stuff that's kept me alive maybe it can help you too and if it can't maybe it can inspire you to know where to look next for what you need to survive mm-hmm. um, yeah it's, I'm really proud of it I'm glad it's finished may I ask how Science Mike man of technology did not have backups going oh, on oh I had on multiple backups on the online uh huh what happened then um, I had uh, my solid straight drive go wonky slowly. And uh-huh. the thing is, is the second time in my life I've been hit by a bug like this. My computer was starting to freeze a lot. And I assumed it was time to reinstall the operating system. But I was busy working on uh, the book. What I didn't know is the disk was failing. Dang. And so it was backing up corrupt data. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so uh, it ended up backing up and corrupting my computer crashed and pinwheeled and i was like in the middle of like i'd written for an hour and didn't want to lose it so i left it running while it was running it wrote garbage data to my remote server which is my time machine server and 
I do have online backup with versioning, mm-hmm. but to get a version that would open when I asked it to, I had to go back four oh. months. So, oh, um, okay, this makes way more sense to me now. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's it's no, a very complex no failure to have backups. Um, it means I know as much as I love the app I used to write, which I won't name because I refuse to disparage it. It's not their fault that a disk failed. But it meant that my entire book was saved as a big monolithic document. Um, and I now only write in Google Docs because every time I press a letter, it's saved uh, on a very big infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if Google loses data, it's because millions of people have died. <laughs> so, yeah. Tell me what the book is. I mean, you've kind of got it at like why you wrote it, but like what's, it seems like from what I can tell, I haven't um, read it cause it's not out yet, but it seems like a lot of it has to do with brain science mm-hmm. and the way that uh, affects how you live. Yeah. So first of all, the not Reddit part, cause it's not out yet <laughs> because of the pandemic, we can't ship early copies to people now which has oh. become kind of a problem. Because, because the, the, order, the warehouses are shut slow. down there yeah. in New York. Uh-huh. Um, so that's been a, a small problem getting it out to reviewers. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we, there's no warehouse. Oh. Okay. Um, but the book is about um, two things. One is like people don't think highly of themselves. Mm-hmm. They are. They have such a sense of basic shame. They drive themselves crazy. We we have thoughts and feelings, and actions all the time that we're like, why did I think that? Do that? Feel that? I'm so mm-hmm. frustrated with myself. Um. And so the book is about how all those things that drive you crazy are actually miraculous pieces of scientific wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, that have kept you alive and the pain in the ass part is um, an exploration of those survival mechanisms that misfire in the modern world and how we can kind of start to be more thoughtful in curating and responding to our survival systems in our bodies and in our brains and that's kind of the arc of the entire book all right well that makes me very excited to read it because i feel like i've been thinking about that a lot i'm sure partially just from i don't know reading your other book and i i feel like you talk about this stuff uh, a lot and it's been helpful for me um but i think so much of what is going on with us all the time and it seems like your book's addressing this is we are animals in some sense and i mean we we are products of millions of years of evolution and that plays a gigantic role in (laughs) everything that's going on with us and yet most of us have grown up in kind of paradigms of thinking that completely ignore that Mm -hmm. and act as if you you might as well be a i don't know like more of a robot or something where it's like you're a blank slate that just you need to write you know the right code on it otherwise you're in trouble and it's just like there's it's so much more complex than that Mm -hmm. there's so much going on under the surface Mm -hmm. the podcast is somewhat loose but it's that the general idea is going through uh look talking to different people different situations 
through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, and so I was wondering if we could talk through kind of some of the implications, things you learned writing the book and beyond uh, around those topics. So I was curious, with these survival mechanisms, what what is uh, how do they relate to the idea of, of what we could know to be true? Oh, wow. <laughs> true is a tough one for me. Yeah. Well, this is, well, and let's talk through like the spectrum of kind of true too. Like, in there's the the kind of the big things we want to want to talk about as true or not, and then kind of more like down to data in some sense. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a, um I'm an empiricist. Mm-hmm. It kind of is my 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 fave epistemological framing. Yeah, explain that for people real quick. Um, epistemology is how we know things, basically. And empiricism is a way of knowing things where you ascribe confidence in ideas uh, in proportion to the amount of evidence you have to support an idea. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're a true empiricist, you have to accept the idea that you can't actually know for certain anything mm-hmm. because you can never have all the evidence. And as an empiricist, I look at the ways that human brains form beliefs, and I realize that human brains form beliefs that make it more likely that they survive and not because a belief is more factual or more based on observation of reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, As social animals, it is much more helpful to believe things that help us fit in with other people than to believe things that are more accurate. Within reason, there are checks on that. If we go too far into a rejection of reality for social reasons, our entire group dies in a flood valley or doesn't respond to a pandemic, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. there are you can go too far out on a limb. But in general, you're more successful if you believe what those around you believe. And uh, so I view all beliefs as survival mechanisms. And I, I have to use really complex and rigorous systems to try to learn things in a way that pushes beyond the biases of my body-brain systems trying to survive. We call Mm -hmm. that the scientific method. And in science, I use observation and experiment to gather data and then ascribe some degree of statistical confidence to an idea. That's really hard. There's so mm-hmm. many things in our daily living that we don't have the ability or the time to ascribe significance to. And so I spend most of my energy letting go of things and holding them loosely and treating my most of my insights as survival crutches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when someone asks me, like, what is true, I'm like, gosh. Uh, I can certainly tell you what is statistically likely based on scientific consensus. If you'll understand, I've got an asterisk that says this could be proven wrong later. Um, And then there's like, I guess what I would kind of refer to as like mythic truth, um, which are things like we need to believe to be happy and healthy. I think it's true that love conquers all in that way. But that's not a fact claim I'll defend. 
I feel like I'm going yeah. deep in the weeds. I don't know how deep in the weeds <laughs> you usually like to go. But. No, I, I go anywhere in the weeds. I love that. I love... Uh, I feel like you go harder into the kind of empirical self-doubt than most people will go. <laughs> I, think, um, I think that's safe. <laughs> <laughs> including most empiricists. A lot of empiricists say they're empiricists and what they really are is they need to believe science is the best way of knowing things so that they feel emotionally safe. And that's not empiricism. That's just mm. a survival strategy. Yeah. So you have, it, the good thing about that is you have a very healthy dose of humility about anything that you think might be true. The hard thing seems like it's so rigorous that it becomes hard to, it seems like it become hard to function at some, sometimes like it, the, that amount of data that you're doubting at any given moment would be overwhelming. Do you ever feel that way? Only if I'm in a really bad codependent state. Uh If I feel like it's my responsibility to know so that I can rescue the world, yeah, that's overwhelming. If instead I realize I'm just like one person among, what, we're pushing 8 billion on the planet now? Mm -hmm. Then I bear one 8 billionth of the responsibility for the way our world unfolds. Hmm. Then I just do my best every day. Yeah, and I'm patient helpful. and gracious with myself. That's really helpful. I, I definitely get overwhelmed by thinking about all the, all the problems, all the things that are screwed up, and then knowing that I can't barely make a dent in any of it. Uh, but that's a that's a helpful corrective. The one eight billionth <laughs> fraction. I mean, they were gonna build more natural gas turbines in the city of Glendale and that would have increased our carbon footprint and I helped organize and rally a response against that and we stopped it that's awesome and at, at in that moment I swung way past one eight billionth of responsibility for how the world unfolds and I just look for those moments we, yeah, we spend so I much think- time thinking about like gosh what can I do about UN level and federal level in whatever country we live in things and that there's not a lot yeah you can do so much in your neighborhood and so much in your city and that's where all the major stuff happens anyway I think that's definitely true in, in a lot of ways I, I do feel like there are some problems that are large enough where kind of federal or global solutions need to be enacted I guess I'm thinking of like the way that it gets pawned off on everyone that, oh, if you, you know, if you recycle a little more or whatever, like you're doing the thing. But in the end, like the larger issues at play, the way that giant corporations are functioning, uh, these things are actually like, if you could, if you could change larger systemic issues, like with something like climate change, like that would move the needle more. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. How do you? That's what organizers are for. Yeah. And that's why we support and participate in the work of organizers. Um, There are people already working to organize and aggregate at scale against climate change. 
So I, ha- I try to figure out how to come along those people and support them financially and using my time. That's the work, right? Like, um, one of the things I care about a lot is racial disparities in our economy and our criminal justice system. That seems like a big, insurmountable problem. But uh, during the primary elections, I'm an active primary voter, I called every single person, called them on the phone and talked to them for 30 minutes, who was running for Glendale City Council, and I asked Mm -hmm. them their plan to address criminal justice disparities in the city of Glendale, California. Mm -hmm. And I voted based on their answers, and I said, I just want you to know, I'll be calling after your election to remind you of this conversation, and I'm an active primary voter. Um, when we were looking at L.A. County Sheriff, I dug deep into the, the racial justice platforms of the sheriffs for L.A. County. I actually called and looked up caseloads for all the judges on the ballot for L.A. County Judge. All those things are important actions I can take. And I look for opportunities to come alongside organizations like Black Lives Matter and support them with my time and my money to start addressing those issues. And in all of those things, what am I doing? I'm getting past one eight billionth of responsibility in Mm -hmm. how the world works. Um, And then I just wake up tomorrow and I try it again. And some days I'm just too tired and too sad and too overwhelmed and I do nothing. And if my rolling average of contribution stays above one eight billionth, I think <laughs> I'm leaving a net positive on the world. That's good. How about the idea of of what is good? How does that tie into uh, the book? The good definitely. The book makes moral assumptions, mm-hmm. and it makes assumptions that it's good to live in a way that lets you, as much as possible, be at peace with others. And so that subtext is in the book. And that's the the goal the book is helping one work towards. I don't think you can live at peace with others unless you love and accept yourself. So the book spends a lot of time Mm -hmm. helping people love and accept yourself. But kind of the framing, and I hate to spoil it, uh, is I start beginning to love you, accept yourself, and then showing you how to look and see those same things in other people so that you can love and accept them too. And so, yeah, the book has that kind of, that that framing, that um, goodness is something we all make together as people. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it does seem like so much of our aggression out at the world is usually some kind of projection, uh, something we're not dealing with in internally, and uh, it makes us incapable of having grace for other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the beautiful? How does I mean? Because I feel like. Uh, I think that's one of the I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this but when I think about it 
it's the harder of the three to talk about as far as like um like a utilitarian evolutionary function in beauty and how we engage with it i think it's the easiest really all right yeah beauty is a thing that we're attracted to because in some way it has a survival factor beautiful landscapes are those which we're drawn to as potential new places to live Mm -hmm. beautiful things in the environment typically will have some utilitarian survival function right uh same with beauty and people Um, Okay, okay but like what about like a completely arid and dangerous desert environment can look very beautiful why am I why we're am primed I to explore and seek out novel landscapes mm. we're primed to not change and to be curious about change <laughs> that's the that's the tension that a, a human animal lives in and the environment then tips us towards either if there's if the harvest is good if there's plenty to eat we tend to we want to stay here and then we still feel that wandering impulse because the second the local area looks like it's not sustainably habitable for us that's when we're like well i wonder what's over that ridge right (laughs) um and so in the book like when i i do talk about beauty in the book a lot and the thing like my favorite passage of the book which got like cut down so much in the editing process it used to be Mm -hmm. more than a chapter's worth of material alone was me talking about like where we came from starting back from a single cell and and moving to today and i find the way that we represent you and i and everyone listening represent an unbroken line back to the first cellular life on this planet is beautiful and the like strange assortment of evolved traits we carry with us were this like amazing improv comedy show that life put on to try to survive and yes and our way to kind of modern bipedal big brain organisms but when you look at like our composition you can still see the fish in there and you can still see the flatworm you can still see all the things that led to us now are still there in ways that frankly no engineer would ever make the design design decisions that led to people and yet here we are and yet we're really successful in the book i find as incredibly beautiful this strange conflicted creature uh that we call a human so when you talk about that that progression of looking at uh coming from these single-celled organisms to now being beautiful how does that tie into like is that like why is that survival related that you would find find that beautiful we're a pretty narcissistic species we love Mm -hmm. to talk about and think about humans all the time (laughs) and i think as we mature emotionally i don't mean physically we learn to find beauty in more things um when i was a younger person my understanding of what made a human being physically beautiful was pretty narrow and i've noticed that as i have 
grown emotionally, I just find all people to be incredibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the framing, I don't know, I'm super explicit about in this book, but part of the goal of the book is to help the reader find more beauty than they see today. That's a mm. huge part of where the book is meant to take you. Yeah, I mean, would you look at it in some ways that the capacity for like valuing aesthetics was developed because of these environmental and survival factors, but since like at a certain point it begins to be something separated from that, that it, it, because our brains are so complex, because our societies are so complex that it somehow moves past that to its own. I don't know. I guess I'm saying like, it seems like the way we talk and feel and think about beauty I can see it developing from the things you're saying, but I feel like it now is something more in some sense. <laughs> Mike is shrugging. I'm thinking. <laughs> what would it look like to be more than utilitarian and survival? How would we know it was more? Yeah, I don't know. That's, I, that's and that's, I mean, I guess, yes. So you're pushing back on in the end. How do you know? And this, well, this kind of leads me to, this is a, a very uh and by the way when it, the, when the rare times i push back it is universally in sincere and genuine curiosity you have you basically you've taken me a place i can't answer so i'm just asking you <laughs> no well, i i think that's a good pushback in the sense of i mean since you're saying what would be more than what is what is right like Whatever it is, it's here, right? And, and it's, it's helping it, us survive. Yeah. All right. This is leading me to a question that is totally my own. I guess all of this is just my curios- curiosity in a certain sense. But I, I, I am weirdly curious about uh, your thoughts on process theology and philosophy. Uh, because I feel like in some ways you would dig on it, but I haven't seen you really uh, gravitate towards it. And I'm curious if it, it's too speculative because uh, the, re- or the reason I ask is because you're very skeptical of everything, everything, <laughs> but you have an investment in certain beliefs and the way that they affect people. Um, for me, at least, I, I really, even though on a lot of levels, I'm like, I, who knows? But I do like the framework of process philosophy and process theology as like a kind of a playground to work ideas in. Uh, and I feel like for those reasons, you might dig it. But I wonder if it's, is it like, it's too much that you're like, I, you can't prove that. There's no way to know that. I have a particular passion for new physics and theoretical mm-hmm. particle physics. It's like one of my favorite things in the sciences. Basically that and neurology are my two favorites of all okay. the sciences. And all of the frameworks and models physicists use to try to reconcile the standard model 
of physics, which governs quantum dynamics, and Einstein's theories of relativity mm -hmm. are speculative. None of them have so much as a shred of observational or experimental evidence to support them. Okay. They're just trying to solve a problem. And I have such joy in exploring those ideas to the point that I've like worked with major film and TV studios to apply those theoretical models to stories they're trying to tell because I'm so into it. And I stop being into it whenever a physicist begins to treat something like quantum many worlds hypothesis or M theory as something that is actual science as opposed to an intellectual exercise that could someday lead to science mm -hmm. it's an important distinction i get annoyed with theology in general mm -hmm. because they play in the hyper speculative way that theoretical phys physicists do without one even as much axiomatic grounding as theoretical physicists have and two they begin to assert their theology as some way factual and it mm -hmm. drives me bonkers so privately and secretly i love reading about theology i do it all the time it's a hobby of mine but i admit that it is intellectual speculative play that is not well grounded to a rigorous explanation of reality mm -hmm. um, if people would say like this is a cool idea. Maybe one day we'll have some grounding to show that it's in some way reflective of reality. I talk about process theology all day, but what I found is if I weigh in on theological matters because people respect and trust me, they begin to treat these ideas as if they are, back to our earlier conversation, true. Okay. And so I'm extremely reticent. That's why I am both in my private life a mystic and in the ideas I will communicate publicly theologically a mystic because a mystic just admits I don't know any of these things and I don't know okay. how to know any of these things about the divine I take really seriously science literacy in our world is very low yeah. and the consequences of science literacy being really low is an incredible cost in human life and human suffering and so I take very seriously my responsibility to be a good educator of science to the public. And that means not weighing in on things I have opinions on very, 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 very often, multiple times a day, multiple times in every interview, while still trying to offer people hope and inspiration. And I lean deeper into hope and inspiration than most science educators do. I think that's, that's mm -hmm. part of what defines me as a person. Uh, but I try to do so in a way that's that's honest and doesn't undermine someone's ability to get more familiar with what they should know about science. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, um, I think uh, process theology is great. It's of the theology is one of my favorites. Well, I feel like you would also appreciate that I think most process people are more into like theopoetics in a, in a sense like that because of that very issue that you're talking about where it's like we don't know what we're saying like at a certain level we're but this is a this is a speculative 
poetic way of trying to make sense of of all of this um which i dig there's a thing that happens in public discourse where like the researchers if you will the people on the front lines of a given line of inquiry have that loose hold and then they unintentionally develop acolytes in the public sphere who don't have that loose hold <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's a, an incredible responsibility to not just develop ideas, but to mentor other people in how to hold and communicate those ideas. Mm-hmm. Because I've experienced like what I'd call like pitch and torch fit. Torch fit? What, what kind of word is that? I don't pitch, know. <laughs> torch, and pitchfork. Wow. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> process theologians in online spaces kind of coming at me for not getting oh, yeah. process theology it's due. And any yeah. theology has people like that and any idea in science and any any belief can become part of a social framework. And when beliefs yeah. become social frameworks, people get really, really attached to them. Yeah, that is very true. As <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it's like the, this is the nerdiest interview I've done in so long. I'm so sorry. I'm just listening, oh, no. I'm like, wow, this is riveting. <laughs> Oh, it's not it's not your fault. Uh, I, no, I, you're doing a great job. I'm like, I keep saying really boring things in response to your no, good I'm, questions. I'm asking you very nerdy <laughs> things, so. I don't find them boring. Okay, um, good. I, I get self-conscious. I feel a tremendous responsibility uh, that I should not to be, to do a good job on your show. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, don't feel that. Don't You don't need to feel that. <laughs> Hold on, are you breaking up? I'm losing you. Yeah, I saw the the weird. It's doing the movie thing where it's like really, so they're really fast and really slow. Yes, <laughs> which is a really f- funny way of dealing with a glitch. I don't know if 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 no if you guys out there have not done Zoom, which you probably have at this point now, but the point where <laughs> it, it'll it'll skip someone talking because it's had a problem, and then it will just show all of you the, the last ten <laughs> seconds in one second, and it's great. Okay, so uh, philosophically, like, you're talking about epistemology, but like, at a, would you say that you're a materialist? Because that's what I like about, like, theology aside, I like the idea of process philosophy in terms of talking about the world as uh in motion in relation as becoming rather than being um it doesn't it it takes very seriously the natural world i just feel like it doesn't box it in the way that a lot of i think materialists would talk about things it makes it leaves more room for stuff like quantum things that we don't understand i don't know i think all philosophies are survival mechanisms okay so that's the that's the that's the trouble asking me like what my philosophy or epistemology are there hats i wear to get through a moment and i will just as happily switch hats when it is convenient and suits me um so most of the time i'm a materialist that's probably my most dominant epistemological philosophical orientation but i'm not always a materialist i don't think anyone's always a materialist that's not how brains work hmm um, but aren't our brains searching for that theory of everything, the like thing that will let us feel like we're living like uh, some brains are looking for a theory of everything. 
Mo- yeah, okay. A search for a theory of everything is just your orbitofrontal cortex trying to get more certain about the model it creates of reality and your ability to survive in it. We like to feel mm-hmm. certain. We have a neurological bias towards certainty over fidelity, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, brains are always searching for that. Some people more formally have a a kind of intellectual, cerebral, cognitive search for a theory of everything, but everybody's orbitofrontal cortex is trying to do a good job predicting the future. Yeah. Um, and what's funny, I, I guess I'm a materialist to the degree that it lets me ha- allows me to have a brain-centered philosophy. I don't think you can, if you dismiss the mechanisms of the brain in every action or belief, and even when I say brain, I mean brain body system. Yeah. Then you do yourself a disservice and you will you will quickly lead yourself to believe that you or someone else is more high-minded than they are instead of primitive arthropods on the seafloor grew brains to try to help them survive. Like <laughs> philosophy is a thing bodies created so they could survive better. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my primary orientation. Um, and I just find that like is the world is easier to navigate and more makes more sense that way. Mm-hmm. Cells came first, then bodies, then brains, right? Mm-hmm. When we assume that brains are like the pinnacle of life, and brain-oriented strategies to survival are some way superior to cell-based models, we're just wrong. Yeah. Bacteria have no moral philosophy. They have no philosophy whatsoever. And they are the most successful organisms in the history of this planet. They've been around the longest. Bacteria haven't had to change that much over the the eons because they're really good at what they do. And the kind of things that terrify us and we think could end our life and our civilization bacteria don't care they'll be just fine um we think it's possible that bacteria have already traveled through space because they're so hardy it's possible that bacteria have been colonizing other worlds for millennia or longer it may be that our world is as it is because literal alien bacteria colonize this one you know and that kind of stuff um i don't see addressed in most human schools of thinking be they mm-hmm. materialist or not. But when I look at life and the miracle of life and what life can do, I just have to constantly gulp from this glass of humility because yeah. I've got 86 billion neurons because my body decided that would be a good thing to carry around and invest in to help it survive. Hey everyone, if you're already supporting the show through Patreon, thank you so very much. If you aren't yet, I wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as $5 a month. Becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks, including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes, Q&A episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer, additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed, 
and access to our Discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show. Here's a sneak peek at a clip of a Lyric Breakdown episode. It says, it seems the price is much too high, but I'm holding out for something real, and that's so, like trying to get it. What is the price? So well, the either, price there is is that sedation, like the whatever. Oh, like, you're you're just it just feels fake the whole thing. Like there, there's an element that feels fakey to imagine to me even now. Like even though I I'm much more sympathetic to it, it doesn't. I don't think it's a fantastically written song for what it's trying to do. I think it's part of its strength. It, it's its melody, its style. I mean, it is a beautiful song. Yeah. So. Sometimes I wonder how much songs really make it as songs because of a, a couple words or the, the it's just so good musically that you could be talking about anything. Well, that's like the whole like Swedish camp, like those producers, <laughs> like what? It's like there's a couple guys who've produced I'm probably at least fifty percent of like the top pop songs in the last twenty years oh, or man. something. Um, Oh. That, don't quote me on that, but it's I think a I know lot. What you're about. Um, and, and through multiple like eras of pop, and so their whole theory—it's not even like accidental. They're like, it doesn't matter what you say; mm. it only matters if it sounds good. If you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on Patreon is the best way to do it. Sign up today at patreoncom forward slash carry the fire pod. All right, let's get back to the show. So you're always starting from the biology in some sense. Like anything I'm thinking, I need to put a check on it and rerun it through this idea of where did this come from in a sense of biological necessity. The cognitive philosophical parts of our body would fit in a shot glass. And so I'll give it about a shot glass's worth of attention. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a tiny part of our brain-body system that does those things. Mm-hmm. What annoys me is when any sector of the academy pretends that there isn't actually a deeper social and emotional motivation behind what they're doing in the academy. Yeah, is that? do you think that's due to kind of how specialized everything is at this point? How specialized and how patriarchal. Mm. the academy is very white and very male yeah very very institutionally structured that way uh and as it becomes more inclusive those hyper cerebral cognitive assumptions are questioned and minimized uh and it's not that that is not to say that like women and women of color and other intersections of, of identity are less cerebral focused that is not true they tend to be more holistically oriented so they can they can cognate as they emote (laughs) Mm -hmm. and those are those are those are skills that patriarchal structures have denied men for hundreds of years now uh maybe maybe pushing a thousand or more uh that started when we uh real agriculture really kicked off that whole process um and so what I've been trying to learn to do is is to grow in wisdom and knowledge is to start listening to those people who were excluded from the patriarchy 
because they have, in many cases, a more fundamentally complete means of which understanding the world and understanding societies and approaching even specialized fields of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think you have to say that they necessarily have a more holistic way of looking at it, if, but you can say that altogether, if we share multiple viewpoints and backgrounds and knowledge, like we will all have a more holistic. Yes. I would say we'll all have more holistic with more inclusion. And right now in aggregate, women have a more holistic view of the world than men. Mm -hmm. And that's not like men are less intelligent or men are bad. Men have been conditioned by society to have a less holistic view. So you're saying this is not a not a biological view, but a not sociological. Not at all. It's sociological yeah. and it's terrible. I talk about this in the book, by the way. The man box, these research-based conclusions about the ways in which patriarchal societal structures are really bad for men. It's not women who are dying by suicide in record numbers in middle age. It's men. Um, we teach men to dominate to win whether that's physically or intellectually or both and men like we try to think how can I go the deepest in some field of knowledge or some career or some pursuit of physical domination at the expense of relationships at the expense of connection at the expense of being aware of and expressing one's own feelings and that leads to over time men feeling really 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 lonely even when they've mm -hmm. achieved everything they wanted to achieve yeah literally by the data these things aren't happening to women now women are suffering from the patriarchy they absolutely are more than men but because they aren't conditioned they're excuse me because they are less conditioned to be at odds with their own feelings and emotions they're more able to experience social connection and social grounding. Mm. And because we're social species, they're therefore more able to survive. And in some way, women of color end up, because of the way things are structured, being the ultimate in a socially oriented homo sapien. Uh, they've had to act as the glue of a marginalized community. They've had to hold mm -hmm. marginalized communities together. And they've had to learn to be interdependent and to trust and rely on each other and to accept the value of their own intuition and yet not uh, rely on their intuition alone. So when I say inclusivity is important, it's important always, but it's especially important in a society that's fundamentally white supremacist, is fundamentally patriarchal, because we have conditioned, in many cases, the most marginalized people to have the we have forced them to have the healthiest relationship to themselves in order to survive the mm -hmm. system that oppresses them. And I think patriarchy and white supremacy and all the other shitty systems that kind of make society bad are, it, are designed to make people unaware of or at odds with their own feelings on purpose because if we're in touch with our feelings, we can't tolerate the world the way that it is. And if we can't tolerate the world the way that it is, then like very wealthy and powerful people might not be as wealthy and powerful. 
<laughs> and so there's like a really big vested interest in the way our society is structured in keeping white men kind of asleep to their own feelings and their own experiences in a way that gets them to participate and facilitate in a system that destroys most of them um, and creates like a tiny number of hyper wealthy hyper powerful people that everyone's a trying to climb the ladder to become yeah oh it makes me th think about i don't know where i've heard this talked about at all but like the idea of like almost like uh like mimetic social organisms mm -hmm. like where it doesn't have to be like someone behind a uh a, a curtain pulling all the levers though there are people there are but they're they're not that competent <laughs> but yeah but there's so the the system itself almost becomes an organism that knows how to defend itself and keep itself going. Yeah, and what will happen is you'll have occasional innovators that create a new mimetic lever in society, and then they die, and it just keeps working. Hmm. So, like, there were people who intentionally looked rich, the equivalent of billionaires in the South in the post-Civil War era, era, and they saw, like, poor white people mm -hmm. living in the same neighborhoods as you know former slaves and starting to socialize and starting to realize they had common economic interests and like actual people panicked and actual people started coming up with segregation not unintentionally yeah but as a way of like keeping these two groups from aggregating together if we can keep them at odds with each other they won't notice that neither of them have anything and we have everything uh but then those people died <laughs> But they, those people created these animating mimetic mythologies that did the work for them, like Confederate pride. Like th th There's always a blend of conscious and unconscious behaviors in these mimetic systems. Um, and the amount of consciousness varies. I think we're coming to a phase right now where people are more consciously racist than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, yeah. But the outcome of racism, conscious or unconscious, is always the exploitation of black and brown people. Why do you think it's moving to the more conscious space? Like it's, is it forcing people to like make a decision and so some people end up leaning further into it? The system itself is in danger. And the system was a means of finding identity for a lot of people. So I grew up in the South when I was a kid and we were in the like whitewashed Martin Luther King era where it's like, wasn't it so great that Martin Luther King came along yeah. and ended racism Yep. and things kind of hit an equilibrium where white people didn't feel racist and black people had less money than white people and less access to education. But we could all say the civil rights movement won and sleep well mm -hmm. and white birth rates declined and more and more Hispanic and Latinx people came to the United States and more and more Asian immigrants and the total number of white people started to decline and white people started to panic a little bit. At the same time, globalization was restructuring the economy. And a, a relatively new construct in our world, the multinational corporation was achieving its stride in a big way kind of really exploding in the 80s and then just 
with the tech boom reaching levels, nothing has ever been as successful as a construct as the multinational corporation. Multinational corporations started using governments and militaries as puppets to achieve their ends, grabbing all the levers of control and power in a society, and just vacuuming up all the currency and all the power. In a real sociopathic way, declared a silent war on the white middle class of America. And so all these people who had been kind of contented passive racists in the South and in the Midwest suddenly are losing their jobs, suddenly their retirement's going away, and meanwhile multinationals keep reporting record stock gains. But instead of getting angry with the institutions that were preying on them, they resorted to an old script with encouragement, with dog whistle pedagoguery mm-hmm. from political classes who serve multinationals, who said, it's the immigrants who are taking your jobs, ignoring the fact that it's the multinationals hiring them because they can have a lower cost of wage and a higher quarterly report and billions of dollars in earnings and short-term cash and assets. The powerful corporations, they don't want an uprising against them. They want to keep having less and less regulation and less and less taxes and more and more money, even though eventually that that's a dead end for them too uh, because there's these unconscious mimetic systems. They don't think long-term like that. They forget yeah. they need an economy to do business. There's just this game of the we need the biggest numbers in our spreadsheet three months from now. Yeah, and um, And then when they start getting heat, uh, politicians want to protect corporations because corporations give them most of their money and they fund all the lobbyists that give all politicians all these great perks and fun things they get to do in their life that makes them feel important and powerful and influential. And so then lobbyists come up with plans that have messaging where it's like, hey, y'all, it's the black and brown people. It's the lazy black people and the brown people come in to take your jobs it's that you got to pay for somebody else's health care and you got to pay for somebody else's unemployment that's why taxes are eating you up so bad and you don't have a job because of brown people coming to the country mm-hmm. there's also this selection pressure of like um as this kind of white group in the especially the south and the midwest has gotten increasingly radicalized like you can't dog whistle anymore. It's too subtle because now the guy who's just saying it's the brown people is winning the primary. And so you see this big rush because of the incentive yeah. structures, this big rush to be more and more openly racist, which then conditions the audience to say, oh, we can be openly racist now, finally. And then you get what we have today. There's To, to understand all this stuff, there's a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty by Dan Ariely. And he talks about the ways that when you talk about these mimetic mechanisms, it's incentive structures. There's mm-hmm. unintended consequences from incentive structures. Yeah. Uh, there's unintended consequences, unintended consequences from a winner-take-all electoral system. Um, that's one thing. There's a set of incentives there. There's another set of extent, another set of incentives from publicly traded companies on markets that guide people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people get stressed or pressured or whatever, they start making less and less moral decisions, even by their own morality, unless it's a, it's a thing that shifts over time. So if you're able to change a number on a spreadsheet one time 
and you don't see a negative fallout in your life, and in fact, mm-hmm. you're rewarded for it, you'll change more numbers on spreadsheets over time, even though that's technically cheating, and still feel mm-hmm. like you're a good person because you give to charity and you take your kids to private school and all these kinds of things that make you feel like you're a good person. That's what's happening writ large. Like Donald Trump definitely believes Donald Trump's a good person who's doing the right thing for the world. Yeah. Um, and it's all the, we have to look at the incentive structures we're building in society because those produce the behavior by what are effectively primates. <laughs> Not effectively. Human society is just a massive study of primatology. And we do the exactly what you would expect chimpanzees or apes to do, given the same set of incentives. We're really good at rationalizing it, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're the best. I think <laughs> that might be the one truly unique gift our species has is extensive rationalization. Yeah, even yeah, to ourselves and to others. Mm-hmm. All right, we got to wrap it up in a minute. I didn't start by asking my normal question because we were talking about uh, headphones and stuff, but I would love to know. When you were uh, growing up, what would give you a the greatest sense of wonder about the world? Wow. I know when you found computers, that was huge. Uh, but I don't know if there's something before there's that. So many things. As a kid, I just walked around with my jaw open and wonder all the time. Wild things. Natural spaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plants. Animals. I like to walk out and in the wilderness, which was easy to find when I was a kid, where I grew up, mm-hmm. and just watch the natural world be natural. And is that still what gives you the biggest sense of wonder, or what do you find? Probably. I mean, I'll sit in my chair in my living room for an hour plus just watching a hummingbird feed mm-hmm. and watch a hummingbird hold the territory of the yard, and I've got all these bird feeders and... I've got all my plants and I walk around and I know my plants and yeah, I like natural things. Do you talk to your plants? Yeah, I do. As I go about, as I go around the garden, I do. I don't think of it as talking to them, but I'm definitely, I comment on what they've done lately. So sure. That's talking uh-huh. to them. I haven't looked deeply into this, but I know there's the studies about plants responding to human either intention or praise have you, have you i've seen some of those studies they often have methodological flaws i, yeah. I would imagine yeah but plants are very <laughs> aware of the world around them it is possible that these studies are reflecting a difference in the level of care that comes along with the attention of conversation as opposed to conversation mm-hmm. all right well I'm going to start wrapping down because I have another call in 10 minutes, though. There's like 80 (laughs) 80 threads I want to tug on right now. I did want to say, I was going to talk about this a little more, but I want to say thank you for sharing your discovery and journey of your learning about uh, being on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. When I heard your Ask Science Mike episode on it, that was the first time that a bunch of things started clicking in place for me Mm -hmm. and I my wife had been kind of half seriously for like a while being like I think you might be on the spectrum and I not in like a way of being like uh, embarrassed about it but I just I think my view of it didn't it just didn't fit 
I don't know. I didn't know enough about it. I was like, no, it's not. And, and when I heard you talking, I was like, oh. And I went and started uh, researching that. And uh, mm-hmm. so through a lot of, a lot of reading and writing and tests. And now I have a counselor who specializes in this stuff. But I realized that I am also on mm-hmm. the spectrum. And it's been really, really helpful to have some frameworks for thinking through a lot of the things that have gone on in my life and um yeah so i want to thank you for that yeah that's why i did it (laughs) (laughs) so thank you yeah i haven't i haven't talked about it publicly before because i haven't known at one i your how careful you were with it was uh definitely gave me pause to not sharing right away what i was trying to you know go through whatever and i haven't done the whole superficial process but uh i feel like i'm at the point where i i feel very sure um Mm. and have enough evidence to talk about it publicly but Mm. um yeah good for you yeah i just i didn't want to you definitely gave me pause of like i don't want to preemptively try to dive into something or claim something that a lot of people have spent their whole life trying to work through and think through. So, uh, and it was really, you don't want to be flippant at first, but also not few people as adults need to go through the entire evaluation process. Number one, it's really expensive. Number two, it might even be available where you are. Right. So yeah, there's a, there's a middle road of being careful and intentional about, using all the resources you have for screening and then having a conversation with a counselor who has some expertise, but then self-diagnosis is accepted in the autism community for a reason. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I want to say thanks and, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really excited, uh, about the book. Is there an audio version coming out with, there is, and I've recorded it. You read it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed you reading the first one and I, I'm glad you're reading it. I really don't understand when they don't let authors read their own books. A lot of authors won't read their own books. I had a buddy, uh, I don't know if you met Chris Hewitt's. Yeah, he, of course. He does, um, they wouldn't let him read it. Read, really? Uh, the Sacred Enneagram. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. And, uh, I think, I think they're going to let him read the, he has a new one coming out soon. Um, but yeah, it just drives me crazy. That's also like I heard that uh, I probably talked about this on the show before, but I also trying to write a kid's book uh, at some point and I was talking to someone who is in that field and they're like, oh, yeah, you don't get to pick your illustrator. I was like, what? It's so weird. It's publishing. It's weird. Yeah. Technically, I don't don't even get to pick the title of my book. I can like give them a title to consider, but that's so weird. The outside of the book is totally up to the publisher. The inside of the book is up to me. It's weird though because I, I don't know why the music industry is different in that sense. Like you get to make the title of your album, you get to decide. People the made up yeah. different rules. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to like uh, you don't want to like have to come up with a fresh way of doing a book every time you do a book. So you're like, here's the contract. That's the contract we had the last person sign. Only we changed the names on this one. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just people being people. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, do you have any consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you? 
<laughs> I call that my life. <laughs> oh my gosh. I guess habits is in the title of your new book. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just my entire life as a curated habit that allows me to flourish. And I have to pay attention to when that scaffold becomes a prison instead of mm. something that supports me, which can happen easily. But yeah. from the moment I get up, uh, I know what comes next because my life is a system of habits and routines. It, that's almost an unanswerable question. It's like, how deep do you want to go? <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like, uh, I guess it'd be hard to say though. I, how much do you, of your kind of habit system do you feel like is related to the spectrum stuff? A lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've noticed for me, I don't, I don't have, and I don't know if it's just having to like adapt to family life or whatever, but I don't, I don't have like, um, order of like things or like that, but I have, I like one of the main things I really noticed, uh, as I was researching some of this stuff and thinking about my own life was like certain like places to like sit or like be like, this is my spot. Mm-hmm. And I get really, I get really, um, worried about not having my spot or like my bunk in the bus. Like if I think about not getting that spot in the mm-hmm. bus, like mm-hmm. it's really concerning to me. And I've started realizing like, Oh, most people don't, <laughs> they're not thinking that hard about where they sit in the restaurant mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, yeah, it's so, I don't know, stuff like that. It's been really helpful. Spectrum to life. It's different. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for helping give me language to that. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Yeah, I've been looking forward to, to shooting the shit with you for a while. Me so. too. I, I got so excited when I saw this was on the calendar. Cool, man. I well, was like, finally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk again sometime. And uh, yeah, have a, have a good one. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. Thank you. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CarryTheFirePod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Adam Collins, Amy Armstrong, Andrew Diaz, Brianna Webb, Brian Weisbecker, Cameron Lane, Colin Hawthorne, Denise Sugita, David Cobb, Drew Perra, Eric Gonzalez, Gabe Muniz, Gary Jilke, Hamsa Babahani, Jeremy Robinson. Jess Card, John Buchan, John Diego, John Engel, Jonathan Clark, Jordan Goodman, Jordan Everly, Joshua Malara, Kyle Starr, Luca Leva, Luis Rivera, Luis Enriquez, Marco Padilla, Mark Francis, Mark Weiss, Matt Fuchs, Matthew Alcon, Michael Maitland, Miguel Pinabroa, Nathaniel Bailey, Ron Alberca, Ryan Cornelius, Samantha Simmons, Sean Widemeyer, Stephen Saucier, Susanna Coleman, Ted Reiser, Tiffany Payne, Timothy Dewey, and William Galdemez. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.